This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women. Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I am Lauren. I'm Alicia. And welcome back to the show for another week. To the show for another week. (laughs) Is that where she, like you said it like that? I don't know. How did, is that how I said it? I don't know. It did sound a little bit accenty. Oh. I'm not sure what accent, but it was bordering on an accent. But that's okay. That's okay. Who can say what we're doing anymore? We're just <laughs> we're talking words. We're saying things. We're most of the time talking to ourselves or talking <laughs> to computer screens. Nothing matters anymore. That's true. No, it it's does. All- things matter. <laughs> Everything matters. <laughs> just a spiral. No, no, no. How how are you, Lauren, in this strange world in which we're living in? I'm getting by. I'm one of the fortunate people who still has a job, but my job is keeping me extremely busy, which also means though that it's keeping me very distracted. It's like keeping me, I've got, I feel like I've got a sense of momentum. I've got a lot of things to do, which is actually helping, I think, to keep me not feeling too lost and despairing, even though I'm sort of like in my home office 24 hours a day, it feels like I think I live at my desk, but you know, that's Mm. okay. Getting by, getting by. How about you? Uh, You know, I've just been having heart palpitations. But other than that, (laughs) oh no! (laughs) other than that, everything's fine. We're all coping with our own versions of various manifestations of shit in this (laughs) situation, aren't we? It's true. It's true. But you know what? I think, as I said in our in the ending of our last special episode, um, I've got cats. So, you know, I just try and go to where the cats are. <laughs> I just try and I visualize the cats. Yeah. I just get in that cat space. Good. And, you know, and it's a good space, the cat good, space. Good. I wish I had a cat space. The cat space. It's, I don't. It's nice. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is is that you can't have both cats in the cat space at the same time because then no, they kill each other. Your cats hate each notoriously hate <laughs> each do. other. So Oh, they hate each other. So they yeah, it's always they have to be separate. Cat, <laughs> cat space is always a separate space. But anyway, uh, cats aside, good times. Yeah, today's episode has nothing to do with cats. Oh, good. At the all? musical nor the creatures, I imagine. <laughs> No, dear God, no, not the not the musical, no. But we're going to be going through the, the mists of time today because we love to do a bit of that. And um, guess what we haven't done on our entire podcast yet? What? A suffragette. <laughs> it's wow. It that feels like a huge oversight, does it not? Like. <laughs> it does. That's quite a hole. It is quite a large hole. You would no think. suffragettes. I feel like we've been suffragette adjacent. Yes, we have. Yeah, we've we definitely been have. In the ballpark, we've been with women who have suffragette leanings or probably, you know, were in those same circles, but they may not have been like outright 
fist raising, like throwing themselves in front of horses, suffragettes. Yeah, that's right. So I think, you know, we have looked at a lot of women who have, you know, obviously worked for the cause of women's rights throughout Mm. history. But in terms of that actual label, that term suffragette, we have not as yet been to Suffragette City. Suffragette City. (laughs) We are going to go to Suffragette City today. It's a lot like Cat City, but... There's less cats and more suffragettes. Good. So, you know, take your pick. <laughs> anyway. I don't know which world I prefer, suffragette <laughs> city or cat city. I don't know which one. What about suffragette cat city? Uh, oh, like, cats who are also suffragettes? Yeah, cats who are like, you know, they're protesting, they're demanding their right to uh, vote. <laughs> Is that? Cats rights. Thing? No. Who, I also say? I feel like suffragettes are largely cat people as well. <laughs> I like that. I like that sweeping generalization. It works for me. <laughs> I like it. Anyway, tell us which well, there are many suffragettes. Which suffragette today are we talking about specifically? Well, specifically today we're going to be talking about Rosa May Billinghurst, who mm. may or may not be a familiar name to some. But uh, we shall find out, we shall see where she fits into the suffragette movement. And the period of women's suffrage that we're going to be looking at today, or the the place I should say, is we're going to be going to the UK today. We're going to be going Mm. to the United Kingdom and we're going to be looking at the history of women's suffrage in the United Kingdom. But we're going to be looking at a fairly small portion of the history of women's suffrage Mm -hmm. in the UK because it does have a rather long history and... This history is tied up very much between the difference between the suffrage movement in general and suffragettes. Mm. So this is the thing. You may think, you know, if you're a suffragist, then you're a suffragette. But no. No. You're actually not. not. They are distinct, aren't they? They are distinct. I don't know if people know that there is a difference between suffragist and suffragette. And we're talking about the, the suffixes. On those words, ist versus et. <laughs> Sorry, can you, tell, can you tell I've been teaching a lot of online grammar modules? Some grammar recently, <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, it's true. So it is an important thing to note. And of course, the word suffrage, just as a on its own, without the suffix, is just a word that simply means the right to vote in a yep. political system. So if you are a suffragist, then basically it means that's what you're campaigning for, the right to vote. But the word campaigning is key here in that difference between a suffragist and a suffragette because suffragists believed in peaceful constitutional change and the right for women's suffrage in the UK began way back in the mid-1800s. So at that sort of period of women's suffrage in the UK, it's sort of mainly populated by, I should say it's populated by some pretty fascinating characters that we're not going to be talking about today because we're not <laughs> looking at that. There's a lot of that. them. There's a lot of them. There's and we're so not many. talking about suffragists today. So yeah, we'll yeah. undoubtedly come back to some of these other women in the future. But we're going to be skipping ahead to the turn of the century, heading into the 1900s when many women were becoming a bit disillusioned with the suffragist movement in general because, to be perfectly honest, it had been going for about 40 years by this mm. time. And it hadn't gotten them, still hadn't gotten them the right to vote. Yeah, yeah. So in comes a new generation of women 
who step into the scene and these are our suffragettes. It's interesting though, just as a, sorry, just as a tiny point, just that idea of generation. I think it's interesting because we obviously talk about like second generation, third generation and fourth. We're now kind of in this fourth generation of feminism. Mm. And we sort of lump the first generation together. But mm. actually, I guess really we have these multiple generations within oh, yeah. that yeah. first wave of feminism, which I guess is the suffrage movement. Yeah, yeah, it? definitely. Yeah, and there's distinct, yes, you're right, and there's very distinct sort of subsets within that. And even in second wave, third wave and fourth wave feminism, we still have subsets, obviously. Mm. You know, there's so many different branches that come under these titles. They're not, you know, one and the same, obviously, mm. within mm. these movements and many different movements. And so when we do think about, you know, the campaign f- to get the right for women to vote, we do think about that as sort of this, yeah, first wave yeah. of feminism. But it's actually stretched out over a huge period of time. Yeah, involves huge. A, Yeah, a huge, a huge different amount of women across the world because, you know, women had the right to vote well, certain women. This is the, this is the other thing. Yeah, as well. exactly. We talk about the right to vote for, as though it's for all women, and of course, it's not. It's for white women of particular classes. Yeah, that's right. So it's very much a staggered mm. sort of advance of the women's right to, to vote. But you know, as early as uh, the mid eighteen hundreds, some women did have the right to vote in local elections in New Zealand, here in South Australia as well. Mm. First colony. In Australia? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Second in the world? Yeah, good job, <laughs> good job us. So it did roll out at different times throughout history, but this sort of this new wave of women who were coming through in the UK who were following through on that suffragist movement, they weren't finding that this sort of peaceful try to change the constitution sort of approach was working because it mm. wasn't working. And so <laughs> this generation were like, you know what, we're just going to fuck shit they were the proper activists, weren't they? They were the like yes. the shutting down streets, marching, proper, we've got the signs. And these are the women who, well, yeah, threw themselves in front of horses. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And yeah. to protest, right? And like went on hunger strikes and stuff. Yeah. So they were much more about getting messy, getting militant, getting sometimes violent. They were the kind of protesters who who were done with that, you know, very polite, very peaceful, like, could you know, mm. maybe just consider us humans sometime soon. That'd be really nice. Yeah, yeah. They were done <laughs> with that sort of shit. And so they were, yeah, they were really willing to protest loudly, to take direct action. And as I said, sometimes that action was militant and violent. So we will see where this takes mm. us. And it leads us to the suffragettes of today's story and to one, as I said, one Rosa May Billinghurst, though she's most often referred to just as May. And not only is her story going to help us redress the fact that we haven't done a suffragette before, (laughs) but it's also going to show up the fact that we've been a little bit ableist in most of our episodes thus far because Billinghurst is also going to be pretty much, I think, the first woman with a disability that we've really properly looked at. I think so, like properly, yeah. Yeah. And now to be perfectly truthful, I think it's important to sort of dissect that a little bit because – Women with disabilities haven't been absent from history, obviously, or from our list of women for this show, but it's really difficult to actually 
pick out those stories from the Mm. history books. And for a huge majority of history, you know, stories of disability are often the stories that are written out of the history books. Mm. Mm. So they're much harder to come by. In their completed, fully kind of the forms that we could go into the same kind of depth. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And while there are, you know, thousands and thousands of contemporary women's stories that there are to tell, absolutely, it's much harder the further you go back. Mm. And, of course, you know, the stories that you can find the further you go back tend to be stories of women from royalty or nobility because Mm -hmm. those were the stories that were deemed important enough to get written down because these people had some kind of reason why you might remember them, Mm -hmm. you know. Of course. So, yeah, so it's a really interesting one. And Billinghurst's life is very well documented, fortunately for us, because she made a pretty big splash among the old suffragettes. So we're going to see where that takes us today. Cool. Yeah. So Billinghurst, the surname is certainly very familiar to me, but I honestly can't pick her from most of the other suffragettes or suffragettes or suffragists (laughs) uh, (laughs) who we kind of like know of more, more famously. So yeah, tell us a story. Where do we begin this one? Well, her story is going to start for us in London in May of 1875 when she is born, which is a great place as always to start someone's story. (laughs) And she was born into a fairly well-to-do family. Um, Her mother was the daughter of a piano manufacturer and her father was a banker. Mm. And whenever I think of bankers and suffragettes. You think of Mary Poppins? I think of Mary Poppins. Mr. Banks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Mrs. Banks. Mrs. The Banks is the suffragette. I didn't know what a suffragist was when I watched that film as a child. I think that was my first introduction to the rights for women. Well, I think that's interesting because I think that there's probably a lot of people who had that same experience of being yeah. like Mrs. Banks. What's she about? Yeah. And of course, in Mary Poppins, she's like, the fact that she's a suffragette or a suffragist, I actually can't remember which she is. Well, it's Edwardian, so she's prob- probably I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. But, like, you know, it's made to make her look like she's a neglectful, yeah. unmotherly, She's like un-womanly. a foolish character. Yeah, exactly. And Mr. Banks, like, is basically just, like, rolling his eyes at her and putting up with, you know, her feminist nonsense. Yeah, I know. And it's so funny because you just don't think about that when you watch that as a child. Yeah. It takes much later in life and you're like, hang on a fucking minute. <laughs> what was that about? But, you know, if you want to hear us rant about Disney, you can always listen to our episode on Mary Blair. <laughs> anyway. anyway. <laughs> so within the first year of um, her life, uh, she was struck down with an illness that left her paralysed from the waist down. Mm. Now, it's largely suspected that this was polio, but I don't think there are any documents that exist that actually confirm that this was the case. Right. Regardless, she basically ended up in leg irons for the rest of her life. <gasps> leg now, irons? Okay. Yeah. So, so can you just describe that to me? So she's not actually like in a wheelchair or anything. Does that mean that she has sort of that structural support around her legs? Yes. So she does actually end up in a wheelchair, but it's 
more of a tricycle. We'll okay. discover that okay. momentarily. But in terms of, I mean, leg irons sounds pretty. Sounds a bit like a torture device. Yeah, to be it honest. does. And I do think they probably were torturous in a lot of ways. Mm. But it was basically, yeah, just like a structural sort of scaffolding that was mm. put around the legs to kind of try and hold them straight and hold them in place. And it did enable her to get around on crutches. So even though she did spend a lot of her time in her tricycle, she was able to actually get up and move around on crutches because of these leg irons as well. And, yeah, they they do sound like a torture device and I'm pretty sure that they would not have been No, that's just the name. It's just the name that sounds like that really. Yeah. Yeah. But I I don't think they would have been particularly comfortable either because, of course, polio was – so prevalent yeah yeah and you know this kind of brings us back around to <laughs> modern times current situations yeah and uh, you know vaccines and uh, vaccinations yeah and, uh, well, what, what what happens when an entire population doesn't have a natural immunity to something and it spreads very quickly oh no everybody gets polio yeah so yeah well Slash as i said though coronavirus yeah <laughs> Whether or not it was actually polio, I don't think has ever been proven. It sounds likely, though. It is a very likely story. And it's also a very common story for Mm. the time as well. Mm. So as I said, she she could use crutches to get around, but eventually she would come to rely on her trusty tricycle. So growing up, she had a governess and she was given a good education, but she was, of course, still limited as to what activities she could sort of Mm. undertake outside the home. So she had quite a few siblings and one of these, her sister Alice, worked in a children's home and she arranged for her to do some voluntary work at the Greenwich and Deptford Union Workhouse. So workhouses were a thing yeah, as well. Yeah, they sure were. Yeah, and often referred to as poorhouses, yeah. of course, which is where we get that saying of being sent to the poorhouse. In the UK, they'd essentially been around since the 14th century. Ooh. Because this is pretty much where you went when you couldn't afford your own housing or you couldn't Mm. afford to basically look after yourself. So you submitted yourself to these workhouses where you worked horribly long days in arduous conditions pretty much for a roof over your head and somewhere to eat slops. Yeah, precisely. That's Made famous in another childhood musical favourite of mine, (laughs) Oliver. Uh, so many musicals <laughs> to use in today's story. So, yeah, historically a lot of that manual labour in those workhouses was, ex- you know, excruciating and they basically to a large degree exploited the, mm. the labour of those people who were living there, who were living there because, as you said, they were poor and unemployed and homeless. Yeah. And throughout the 19th century they became more and more a refuge for the elderly and the sick rather yeah. than for the general sort of poor population at large. Because there's no social services then. It's not like you can just no. get your pension or something. No. And so as we move into the 20th century, though, they start to fade out and eventually they're abolished. And, and most mm. of those sort of, because they're in institutional-like buildings, so most of those were sort of turned into hospitals in the 20th century. But in Billinghurst time, they still would have been a, a very confronting place mm-hmm. for her to be working in and volunteering. And here she would have seen all kinds of women literally slaving away yeah. at keeping their families and their children alive. 
she would have interacted with women also involved in, you know, the most shocking kind of sex work that Mm -hmm. we can think of, which Mm. is definitively not the kind of glamorous and empowering sex work that we looked at last in week. our last yeah. episode. <laughs> Definitely. No, decidedly the, not. No, no. Very much the opposite of that. So like many of the women in our past episodes, it's this direct experience of poverty and suffering that motivates Billinghurst to want to do something to change it. Yeah. So now fundamentally she believed that if women could be more involved in political life, then they'd have some useful fucking contributions to make to these what? kinds of social issues. What a I fucking know. concept. What wow. a concept. That's like it's almost as though that is like one of the central tenets of feminism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it's almost like it's a good idea yeah. as well. Who would have Crazy. thought the, yeah. the political and economic emancipation of women would make life better for everybody? I know. It doesn't seem logical, does it? <laughs> But Billinghurst believed in it. She got it. She was onto it. She was onto it. She was an early and leader. She was. And this ignited her interest in women's suffrage yeah. because, you know, this had been brewing for quite some Which, time. Yeah, so I was going to say, as we know, had been around for a few decades yeah. by now. So it was there. It was part of the world at large. Mm-hmm. So she joined the Women's Liberal Association. Now, back then, liberals were the major opposition to the conservatives before the Labor Party came in. And that's confusing for us because our Liberal Party is our conservative party. Yeah, in Australia, Uh, yes. (laughs) Even though they're currently more like a socialist party. Yes, weirdly. Weirdly. Oh, also just goes to show how socialist policies have their place in (laughs) times of crisis. Anyway, we shan't go into that, shall we? History. History's an amazing (laughs) thing. Isn't history an amazing thing? Anyway. (laughs) So parties aside, the Women's Liberal Association had been around since the 1880s and by the 1900s their objectives included obviously getting the vote for women Mm. at local and parliamentary elections on the same basis as men. So she was part of this group and she was like, yes, this is great. These are good ideas. Yep, good, good. But she also started attending more, well, maybe let's say rousing meetings. (laughs) More passionate. On on women's suffrage. And at these meetings she heard some of the big names in the suffragette movement speak. And so these are names that I think are more familiar. So, for example, Millicent Fawcett Mm -hmm. I think is a name that people – probably know quite well in the suffragette movement and of course the pankhursts the pankhursts the like suffragette i can't think of a single good word that would do them justice (laughs) i I was trying to think of something alliterative i'm tired man yay pankhursts let's leave it at that great try yeah (laughs) so the pankhursts were basically a family of suffragettes and emmeline pankhurst who was sort of the matriarchal figure of the family She had founded the Women's Social and Political Union or the WSPU in 1903. And now, as I said before, this was a group that differed from other suffragists because they were dedicated to or their slogan was basically deeds, not words. Yeah. This was their motto. Yeah. So they weren't also weren't interested too much in the help of men in their cause, even though (laughs) Emmeline's own husband was an advocate for women's suffrage. But they really saw this as, you know, women needed to work independently towards Mm -hmm. their own emancipation. Yeah. It's almost like lived experience is like a really important part of, you know, equality. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Again. Sorry, we're doing so many sarcastic, like, oh, it's as almost as blah, blah, blah. It's just these (laughs) things, they seem so obvious to us now, don't they? But it's just like, ah, infuriatingly long time for people to figure it out. Yeah, I know. But I think in a lot of ways we still haven't figured it out. No. Well, no, particularly when it comes to like the importance of own voices and lived experience. (laughs) Anyway, we say that as two white women as well. well. So, you know. We're just trying to spread these stories out in the world. We're not yeah. trying to own these stories. Yeah. I think it's a very yeah. different thing. <laughs> so the Pankhursts, they were sort of, you know, at the forefront of this suffragette movement and they were demanding that more immediate and urgent action should be taken. So they believed in things like attacks on private property Ooh. but not on human life. Oh. So that's good. That's key. I think that's always yeah. key. I think all societies should have that particular Interesting idea. <laughs> Life in general would be great. Quite radical, so, yeah, actually. <laughs> very much so. So it was Emmeline's daughter, Christabel, who most inspired Billinghurst to join up because she roused in Billinghurst this desire to act sort of boldly and bravely. And Christabel was actually the one who was largely responsible for directing the more militant actions of the WSPU, albeit she did a lot of that while she was in exile in France. Mm. But this is not Christabel's story. So have to wait for another day. Anyway, as I said, Billinghurst was inspired by these women. And so in October of 1907, she joined up with the WSPU and she resigned from the Women's Liberal Association. And over the next few months, she got her family quite involved in the WSPU as well. And they ended up donating quite a lot of money to the cause. So she quickly became a very familiar sight at meetings and one you couldn't mistake because, of course, she was there in her tricycle. Of course. So the tricycle that I mentioned earlier. Now, the wheelchair has an interesting history of its own and some of the earliest sort of depictions of the of wheelchair-like devices go back to like the 5th and 6th century BCE. Wow. Yeah, so wheelchair-like devices have been around for forever But it slowly evolved over the centuries into things like bath chairs in the 1700s and then rolling chairs in the Mm -hmm. 1800s. But it wasn't until the 1930s that the first sort of lightweight folding steel wheelchair was finally invented. The 1930s. Gosh. Yeah. So in Billinghurst's time, the easiest way for her to get around was in this tricycle that she had. when you say tricycle... I imagine you don't mean a tricycle the way that we would imagine it today as like a children's, you know, trike, right? <laughs> no. So no. I guess that means it, basically you're talking about a chair with three wheels as opposed mm. to two. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I imagine one is at the front and two are by her sides or something like that. Oh, close, but not quite. Oh. No. There's plenty of images of her that you can find as well to kind of give you the full picture of it. But the section that she sat in was kind of similar to how we might imagine a wheelchair now. But the third wheel actually sat behind her, not in front of her. Right. And at the front of the tricycle, it's actually tricycle's a bit misleading because there were two sort of stabilizing wheels at the front of it as well. So, yeah, I think in order to kind of get a good idea of it, you should have a look at some pictures of her. And you'll also see in a lot of the pictures of her in her tricycle, she's also got her crutches either side in there as well. Yep. So you can see those sitting in inserted on the sides of the tricycle. But, yeah, it's a really kind of – it's quite a fancy sort of machine. And 
it was really quite useful as a propaganda machine as really? well. Yeah, because she would deck it out with ribbons and oh. banners for the cause and basically she was impossible to miss. Like you couldn't not see yeah. her yeah. with all of her paraphernalia up and down the sides of her tricycle. <laughs> so she was really starting to make a bit of a name for herself in the suffragette movement and becoming quite a familiar face, as I said. And so also this led to her being referred to more generally as, Mm-mm. well, oh no, <laughs> certainly as what, not what we would call her these days, but at the time. I love how many caveats you're giving this before <laughs> you say it. Like we can tell it's going to be bad, can't we? <laughs> There's always got to be those little kind of like, you know, hands up, look, this is, you know, <laughs> this is a historical story. She was basically known as the cripple suffragette. Oh dear. So yes. But this was how the press referred to her and this was how many of the other suffragettes referred to her as, as well. So this was how she – this was the name she sort of made for herself. Okay. As long as she's claiming ownership over that name, which I yes, think we exactly. can assume that she is. Yes, yeah. At the time did not have that same sort of pejorative connotation. Yeah. Certainly for her that it would have for us to use it now. Yeah. So she became heavily involved in the WSPU and she was heavily involved in organisation work, in fundraising, canvassing, leafleting and joining protest marches and meetings. Uh-huh. So, yes. <laughs> so by 1910, she'd founded her own branch of the WSPU as well in Greenwich and she took the role there as secretary. And it was in November of the same year that she joined with her fellow suffragettes to demonstrate outside the House of Commons in London. And now this day would go down in history as Black Friday. Wait, which date? What's the date here? Sorry. So this was the 18th of November, 1910. Okay. So a little bit of background to this is that in 1910, the then Prime Minister was Prime Minister Asquith. And he had promised at the sort of the start of 1910, he'd promised to concede some measures to allow for some women's suffrage in national elections, but not universally. All right. So there were a lot of pro-women's suffrage MPs already sitting in Mm -hmm. Parliament and they had proposed legislation that was much broader than what Asquith was allowing for. Yeah, okay. And they were trying to expand out the number of women who would and should be allowed to vote. And this gained a lot of support and it passed its first and second readings in Parliament. But by November, inevitably, Asquith had had enough of it Mm. and he blocked it. Right, the whole thing. The whole thing. Is he just like, nah, I've had it with your fucking nonsense. You keep trying to push this thing and I told you that I would only do it if you did it my way, but you keep trying to add all your extra all your extra rights in there I've conceded all the other shit that you want what do you how want how much do you people me? want i've given you something shut up yeah now i'm taking the whole thing away so pretty much he refused to allow any more time in parliamentary consideration and what he basically did was he went like nope we're done with that i'm over it and i'm calling a general election which of course in which you ladies can't vote and <laughs> i'm Dissolving the parliament. He dissolved parliament over it? He dissolved parliament. Wow, that's actually like a really big deal. It is. It's huge. Well, so for those who don't understand what dissolving parliament means, though, it means essentially that any unfinished business falls, any bills that haven't gone through Mm. fall because they can't be carried over into new parliament when it sits again after the next election. Yeah. So 
any bills that haven't been passed before dissolution, they can't just be picked up where they left off. Yeah. You basically have to start from scratch again. Because you have all, potentially all new members. Yes. Again, for those who don't know, it means like we're like, okay, we're quitting this parliament. We're now going to election. We're going to start the whole thing again, get new. Yep. So you can potentially end up with a totally different cabinet. Yeah, because basically all the MPs lose their seats. Like yeah. it's all like, no, nah, everyone's out until the next election. Yeah. So, yeah, it turns everything on its head. So essentially he was trying very fucking hard to fuck things up for the suffragettes. Yeah, yeah. He was like, and the suffragists, I should say, not the same yeah. thing. Yeah. But, yeah, he basically went to those measures to try and get the whole thing thrown out of parliament. So quite naturally you would think the suffragettes saw this as a massive fucking betrayal mm. and a bullshit move. So on the 18th of November, when this news came out, they rallied together and they marched down to Westminster, which is, of course, where the government district in London, where the House of Commons mm. is. And there were lines of police that came out, not to mention crowds of male, quote, unquote, bystanders. Okay. Who were like... What are all these bitches up to? Why are they here? <laughs> and when the women arrived at Westminster, there was what can pretty much be described as a battle between the women protesters, what? the police, and this mob of men. What? And it went on, if you can believe it, for six fucking hours. Okay. A battle? Yes. In because the streets near in Westminster? The streets. Exactly. Because the women were quite literally attacked. They were set on <gasps> by these gangs of men and some of these attacks included like sexual assault <gasps> essentially. Like many women reported being groped at, having their, you know, their breasts punched or <gasps> pinched or twisted and there was basically like violence in the streets. Holy shit. And I'm, yes. I'm going to assume that the police aren't there protecting the women. Yeah. Lauren, that's right. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. you might think or hope that because the police are there that they might step no. in. I'm going to they, they were, decidedly did not. No, they were literally beating women up <gasps> who tried to enter parliament and throwing them back into the crowd of angry men. And the Pankhursts, who I mentioned before, mm. they were there as well. And Sylvia, who was another one of the daughters in the family, she recorded that some men were dragging women away into <gasps> alleys for what she called, oh. quote, unquote, greater ill usage. Oh, fuck. Which I think fuck. we can no, take an yeah, we, assumption yeah, we of what, what that, that might mean. Yeah. Exactly. So this was essentially like a mob of men who were attempting to put women back in their place, you know? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, the way that – so we've talked a lot before about these sort of ideas of particularly Victorian ideas of femininity, right? There's this mm. like, you know, the perfect woman is passive and docile and she lives in the domestic realm and she's a good mother and a good housekeeper. Yeah. And that woman would never be touched by a man. In respectable society, of course, women faced horrendous – domestic abuse from their husbands all the time, but it wasn't spoken about. But within, you know, this kind of quote unquote respectable middle class society that everybody aspired to, these mm. kinds of women wouldn't really be touched, right? You're no. like, they are beacons of goodness. Yes, but it's exactly. interesting that as soon as those same women 
demonstrate any kind of subversion of those ideals. As soon as they resort to any kind of action or violence or anger, anything Mm. that would make them seem baser, that sort of taps into those ideas of women's baser instincts, right? There's this sort of Mm. prevailing notion that women, and this is all within big quotation marks, that women have these sort of more primal, unbridled. Yeah, animalistic. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And as soon as that part of them comes out, you can treat them like animals. Yeah. You know, because they're no longer human, because they're not living up to this very, very, very particular idea of what it means to be a quote unquote woman. Yeah. And then you're allowed to drag them into the alley. You're allowed to bash them on the street Mm. Mm because they deserve it because they're not acting like real women. Yeah. Like it's, (sighs) it's a horrific, like it's actually really horrific to think that not only is this something that's sanctioned by this mob mentality, but it's also being sanctioned by the law holders, Mm. by Mm -hmm. the police, by the people that should actually be coming to your aid and your assistance. Yeah. But, I mean, we still see this today and and it's not just with women. It it applies across race. It applies across, you know, various cultural sort of differences, like anything that, seems beyond yeah or taps that into idea. that idea of the base in nature yeah and it's that idea of like i said of, of getting back in your place it's yeah. that idea of yeah. you know out of stepping outside of the bounds of what what we've allowed you yes and how fucking dare you think you have a right to anything more than that yeah how how fucking dare you think that you can come here and demand anything more than we've already allowed yep. you. And in this particular instance, I mean, this is police brutality mm. against these women and it was rife. And there were women in the streets with, you know, bleeding noses, black eyes, broken bones, like women lying in the streets. And these images, you know, they were headline news as well. And nobody, even though fortunately, amazingly, no one actually died in the streets that day. Wow. I know, which is like amazing to think that there weren't any casualties. Two women did die later from mm. what is believed to be, you know, related in, to yeah, injuries that they sustained, had sustained that yeah. day. So even Billinghurst didn't escape assault. And at one point she was pushed out of her chair. Now, <laughs> interestingly, the police came and reseated her. And you think, oh, that's good. That's great. The police have come to her help. But But. then (laughs) they actually twisted her arms behind her back, pushed her down a side street. So they've got her restrained so she can't fight back. Pushed her down a side street. And then they let the air out of her tyres and took the valves off her wheels and deserted her there. And just left her fucking Just fucking left left her her there. there. Yeah, exactly. Like... Luckily, she un- she escaped unharmed. So but that this is, is police brutality. Exactly. This is like how this people die in custody today, this kind of fucking ne- shit. Yes, precisely. Like it's quite shocking. Yeah. And you you just read this as part of history. You know, this is, oh, this is just some history. And, mm. and we've talked a lot about that sort of distance of history and how things, you know, they lose that impact over time. They yeah. never seem quite as shocking because we've got that. 
distance between us and when it happened. But when you really stop to consider this particular day, it's fuck like it's horrific and it yeah. gives me chills to think well, about it but, now. but I think this is the thing. This isn't history. You know, and you don't have to look far to see this happen today. No, that's right. Look yeah. at the names of the people who die in police custody or who are unfairly targeted by police or face this kind of treatment in protests. It happens. It doesn't, let's be honest, happen to white women quite as often as it used to. It happens to other people. It happens to people of colour. You know, Australia has a, a an awful history mm. of this happening to our mm. Indigenous population. Like this stuff happens today. All the time. Today. Yeah. yeah it's and people die. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I say as well that it's amazing that there were not more fatalities yeah. on this particular day because it really is, you know, this is why it's called Black Friday. It really mm-hmm. is a horribly, horribly dark day in English history. And so by the end of this whole mess, police had arrested over 100 women, including Billinghurst, only four men. Fucking of course. Oh, my God. And I bet – oh, sorry. No, okay. We all know how I feel. You can carry on. (laughs) (laughs) But in the end, all of the charges were dropped due to a lack of evidence Mm. that they could bring against any of these people. Well, that's good. That's something. So that's something. (laughs) So there were calls for public inquiry into what had happened and into the police involvement. But old Winston Churchill, Mm. who was at the time the Home Secretary – Mm-hmm. rejected that really so, thanks Churchill yeah <laughs> he oh, refused dear. to let an inquiry go into the day of course so yeah interestingly Churchill was reasonably on side with women's suffrage and he had suggested that there should be a referendum on the matter oh. but Asquith quashed that idea pretty quickly okay so. <laughs> but if they had a referendum would that referendum only be open to people who are allowed to vote? Would like <laughs> know, would exactly. only men be allowed to vote on this referendum? Or In would it be case, open to women? Yeah, I know. I know. It makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. And I guess Churchill was sort of like banking on the fact that maybe there were quite a lot of pro-women's suffrage supporters among the male voting. That doesn't seem likely in 1910. I don't even know if you held a referendum today if it would pass. (laughs) If we held a referendum that was like, should women still be allowed to vote? (laughs) I don't feel confident that it would be an overwhelmingly supportive response. Yeah, maybe we should take that away from them. No. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I've got another woman who we're going to look at later in the year, so I won't give too much away. But she was involved in another referendum. She was involved in a referendum here in Australia oh. where there was a resounding yes vote. I know, I know which one you're talking about. You do know which mm-hmm. one I'm talking about, but I'm not going to talk about it now. <laughs> we'll save it. We'll save that for that episode. So as you can probably imagine, A lot of women were pretty terrified after this and a lot of suffragettes were a little bit put off from wanting to get any more involved in protest marches or direct action because they were were terrified. So they decided, a lot of them decided just to stick to their previous methods of disruptive sort of civil disobedience, I suppose. And a lot of these methods were fun methods like (laughs) window smashing. (laughs) (laughs) General destroying property. Yep. Uh, this was one of their big things was basically destroying property. Destroy the joint. So just, yeah, just tear the shit down. Yeah. So Billinghurst wasn't put off 
And only four days after Black Friday, she was arrested at another demonstration. And this time she was in prison for five days. Now, at this demonstration, apparently she tried to use her tricycle like as a battering ram (laughs) to push her way through the police line. Ah, So (laughs) great. She's essentially like trying to like <laughs> ram her way through this cordon of police, like which is pretty good. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So when she was released, she uh, went back to window smashing good. and she had this little neat trick of hiding rocks and stones under a blanket that she'd put over her legs in the tricycle, you know, oh. like, so she's trying to look all sort of, you know, infirm and weak and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like, I'm, she would have been me. such a Trojan horse. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> all this time, all the while, she's like packing all these items of destruction, like under her. a blanket. That's amazing. So, yeah, it's pretty good. So she was arrested again for this and sentenced to one month hard labor, oh. right? But then when she went into prison, everyone was a bit confused and they were like, oh, don't worry about the hard labor. (laughs) So so she didn't get extra duties. She was given no hard labor because they just didn't – they were like, well, how are we going to make this woman in the tricycle do hard labor? Okay. It's not going to happen. Well, their ableism worked in her favor. (laughs) In her favor that time. Yeah. So this wasn't the last time she would be arrested. And another of her acts of resistance, as I've mentioned, was also about disrupting and destroying property. And in 1913, she was arrested for another act of destruction. This one was even trickier. So sometimes alone or sometimes with the aid of another suffragette, Billinghurst would go about the streets of London with basically like bags of this weird black substance hidden under her blanket. And I don't really know what this black substance was. I don't know if it was like a tar kind of substance or a paint or what it was. But either with the use of a sort of a tube or an assistant, an accomplice, she'd pour this substance into letterboxes, which might sound weird. Just like a mischievous prank. It sounds like a mischievous prank and that's all it sounds like. But it's actually a pretty full-on means of civil disobedience. And Well, there's no email, so if you're like – Making people not be able to get their mail, that's actually quite disruptive. Exactly. And she wasn't the only one doing it. It was becoming a really popular act. And by this point, there's over like 5,000 letters were destroyed in these weird raids on letterboxes. And you know, like tampering with the post is actually like a major crime. Precisely. Yeah. And this is what they're doing. Yeah. (laughs) So in December of 1912, Billinghurst and her accomplice that she had with her on that day, they were arrested when a passerby saw them loitering near a post box and this post box had like this black substance <laughs> oozing from the bottom of it. So she conducted her own defence but she was sentenced to eight months so imprisonment. So she, she represented herself in court? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Didn't do her any good though. No, that generally is a bad move I feel. But you know what? I feel like that's something I would also do. I feel like I'd be like, no, nah, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to defend myself and I'd just get up and I'd rant and rant and then at the end of it everyone would be like, I just put her in jail. (laughs) Um, Now, this term of imprisonment brings us to another very dark part of the suffragette movement because like many other suffragettes who were being imprisoned at this time, Billinghurst went on a hunger strike. I was going to say, does this have to do with hunger strikes? Because they were such a big thing, weren't they? Mm, Yeah, definitely. And I can't remember in which episode, but I'm sure that we've touched on hunger strikes Mm. before. I feel like we have, but I can't think in which episode. Me neither. But the, the thing about hunger strikes was that 
also as I sure we've mentioned before, the authorities responded to these hunger strikes with force, force feeding. feeding. Yeah, we have exactly. talked about this before, haven't yeah. we? Mm. Now, this is incredibly traumatic and Billinghurst described it quite rightly as torture because, of course, force feeding involves trying to get a tube down the throat or nose. Yeah. And this is a different – Or nose? Yeah, or nose. Really? Yeah, definitely. Yep. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Um, And apparently with Billinghurst, you know – she actually talks of this account where they tried to get it in one nostril but it was blocked and they're like trying to jam it in that <gasps> nostril but they couldn't get so they then they went to the next oh. one and and of course when someone's already trying to resist you this is even worse yeah, yeah. you know because she would have been restrained but she would have still been trying to move her face away and in one incident she fought back so violently against them that some of her teeth were actually <gasps> damaged and her cheek was cut open oh like a gash in the side oh. of her cheek because they were trying to jam the tube into just her throat. already, just like picturing it makes me feel nauseous. Like it's getting my gag reflex going even though we're just talking about it. Yeah. It was really sort of positioned as a type of torture. Yeah. Because it is. And there's a lot of propaganda and posters at the time sort of calling the government out for this yeah. and saying, you know, women are being literally tortured. tortured. In, they're literally yep. being tortured in our prisons. And again, you know, history, but close mm. to our modern times, our contemporary times. And for Billinghurst, you know, this was such a horribly debilitating experience and it compromised her health so significantly that she was released after just 10 days in prison, after just a short time of her on, of her sentence On being, health grounds? On health grounds. Right. Because it made her so horrendously unwell. Wow. Now, this also led in 1913 to the prevalence of hunger strikes and force feeding among suffragettes led to what became known as the Cat and Mouse Act, where basically when a woman went on a hunger strike, they'd release her again oh. until she was recovered. And, and then, then they'd arrest her yeah. Yeah. Send her back to prison. She'd go on another hunger strike and on and on and mm. on it would go. Mm-hmm. It was just ridiculous. But they were intent on rearresting these women as long as it took for that sentence yeah. to be carried out. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. they didn't care how many times that meant that you were in and out of prison. They didn't care how many times it meant that you were on hunger strike. Like, yeah. It's ridiculous. It's insanity. So after Billinghurst's release and recovery, she went back to demonstrating. Obviously, she was not going to be stopped. No. No way. No. And in May of 1914, she chained herself and her tricycle to the gates of Buckingham Palace. Good on her. Yes, exactly. Now, of course, this is 1914. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, this is a bad time. It is a bad time because there's something looming on the horizon. Something, you reckon? Yeah, Something. <laughs> Something looming, a big dark thing looming on the horizon. There sure is. That is going to overtake all of this. It's going to overshadow everything very soon. Because by August of 1914, there was war. Yes. First World War had begun. Now, this is an interesting one because this turned the tide for the suffragettes in a few different ways. So firstly, what it meant was that all the remaining suffragettes imprisoned were released Uh on the proviso that the suffragettes ceased their militant action 
and turd towards supporting the nation's war efforts. Okay. Yeah. Of and course. the suffragettes agreed. They were just like, this- uh, or do you think that this was like a moment of they actually realised how fucking big the situation was and that they needed to, you know, stay home and, and not touch anybody? And follow the rules. <laughs> and social distance. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, follow the rules. Follow the rules. <laughs> I think it was that sobering moment mm. of realising that there was, you know, obviously the right for women to vote is no small matter. No. And it's an important one. That, but I guess it was the, also this idea that this world war was happening and it was something bigger than anyone. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah. it, it really was that sort of sobering moment of a lot of people, not just suffragettes, but a lot of people just realising, okay, we need to turn towards this one purpose yeah. and we need to focus on this one purpose and we need to come together and, you know, work together. Yeah. <laughs> Again, <laughs> as we keep saying, <laughs> we're all in this together. Yep. But it really was one of those galvanizing mm. moments. Mm. So the suffragettes did cease their militant actions. And of course, as well, what happened was as men went off to yeah. war, these women went into their jobs. Well, this is exactly the thing. In in many, many ways, the war, despite the fact that it halted their mission, as yeah. I guess in the way that they intended for their mission to be carried out. It also opened up so many other avenues for them to demonstrate how capable women are and the fact that actually there's literally nothing forbidding women from entering the workforce and being productive and taking on these roles except for the social structures that prevent them from doing so. Precisely. And it's those same men who only four years earlier who had attacked them in the streets. Yeah. It was those men's jobs that they were now stepping up yeah. to the plate to do. Yeah. And they were taking over those essential services that those men were having to leave behind because they were heading off to war. Mm. So Billinghurst too turned to supporting the war effort, even though, you know, they still kept campaigning for the vote. Yeah. But now they'd moved away from those it's militant, the militant stuff. Yeah. 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 They'd moved away from that and they'd gone back to that more suffragist sort of idea of peaceful campaigning mm-hmm. and trying to push for things through parliament. They'd returned to that sort of idea. But it was still another four years, wasn't right through until the end of the war, that women finally had the mm. right to vote in the UK. And this was still not all women. No, no, a no. tiny percentage of women. That's right. So remember old Asquith, who yep. I mentioned before? Well, he had been re-elected after that Black Friday But it turned out he was actually a terrible wartime leader and had no idea what he was doing. (laughs) So he was replaced in 1916 by David Lloyd George, who also just happened to be a longtime supporter of women's suffrage. Yay. Yay. Move over, (laughs) Asquith. So the idea of giving women the right to vote, as we said, had also been buoyed by the fact that, you know, Obviously, they'd stopped their militant actions, but they were proving themselves mm, yeah. as these really capable yeah. members of it's society. Like, oh, we can't just talk the talk. Look at us walking the walk. Look exactly. who's building your machinery. Look who's, well, not this war, but, you know, coding your programs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was definitely that sort of thing of, well, like, look at what we can do. Yeah. Look at the fact that we're as perfectly capable of you as you of the same tasks 
that no one seemed to think before that we could. Yeah. Why is it that you would still think that we're not capable of yeah. intelligently assessing contributing who we might vote for yeah. in a political space? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Why would those things still not make sense? Yeah, to absolutely. <laughs> so by the end of the war, Parliament passed an act granting the vote to right to women over the age of 30 mm. who were householders. Yeah. The wives of householders. So that means, yeah, basically that meant you had to be married. Yeah. Occupiers of property with an annual rent of five pounds <gasps> or more. Fucking hell. And graduates of British universities. No, fuck off. Yeah. Okay, so you had to be a married woman over 30 who owned property and had a university degree. <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, shit. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be yeah. allowed to vote. Yeah, well, you didn't have to be all of those oh, things. okay, okay. You didn't have to be all of those things <laughs> Okay, you just had to tick some boxes. You had to tick one box. Yeah, you okay. had to tick at least oh, okay, one then. box. All right. Yeah, yeah, so you wouldn't have to tick all the boxes. Okay, good. I tick, tick at I least one. two of those boxes, I guess. Yeah, I think. Good, good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but two, two. this actually, this was about 8.4 million women. Whoa. Okay. Which is a lot of women. Yeah. But it still wasn't all women. It's not all women. No. But there's no racial exclusions there, is there, or ethnic or religious exclusions? Is that They're, so? Well, because not that it's specified like, in the information. I don't know if they're implied. Yeah. Because I guess that's also about citizenship. Yeah, because I'm also just thinking like comparing it to Australia or to the U.S., where there mm. definitely are women who were excluded on those grounds. Yeah. And I do think that that comes under the idea of British citizenship. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's another one of those caveats mm. that comes mm. under that idea of, you know, you're a householder, you're the wife of a householder, yeah. all that sort of stuff. And also you would need to be a, a citizen, you know, a citizen. Yeah. So this would take another 10 years until 1928 before women were on equal footing with men, which meant that women over 21 were able to vote. Okay. And this was on par. And they got rid this. of all of those other restrictions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So women were finally now, their right to vote was the same right to vote mm. as their male contemporaries. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing to think that that took until 1928. It is amazing to think that. That's so late. It is. It really is. But it's by no means one of the latest no. countries. <laughs> you know, there's plenty of places that took a lot longer than that. And actually, while there are still plenty of issues, obviously, with democratic elections, it was Saudi Arabia in 2015 that <sighs> was the last country that permitted women to vote. Five years. Um, and also to run in elections as well for the first time. Five years ago. Yeah, exactly. Oof. But also there's a little interesting footnote there as well about Ecuador, just on a completely unrelated tangent, <laughs> just about how in Ecuador men and women queue separately to vote oh. because it's a sort of conservative and predominantly Catholic country. And it was the first time in 2017 that transgender voters were actually allowed to choose which line to stand in. Really? According to the gender with which they identified. Oh. So that's just an interesting, totally interesting side note. There you go. About voting. There you go. Cool. There you go, people. But where were we in the story of Billinghurst? 
Yes, and in 1918, it was also passed that women could run for the House of Commons. Oh, yeah, because those tend yes. to go hand in hand, don't they? Like that, you get the they right do. to vote and the right to run. That's right. And during those war years, Christabel Pankhurst, who was the one that had been in exile, she had returned from exile because obviously you want to get the fuck out of France. <laughs> yeah, um, shit. And she had began the Women's Party and she tried to run for the House of Commons in 1918 with the help of Billinghurst, but she was defeated, mm. albeit by a very narrow margin. Really? So, well, that's encouraging. I actually yeah. expected that it would not have been a narrow margin. No. No, quite narrow indeed. Here I am, underestimating people. Mm, Quite a close race. Mm. So Billinghurst remained committed to the women's movement for the rest of her life, um, even though she essentially retired sort of from the public spotlight to go and live with her brother. Um, She remained a member of the Suffrage Fellowship, the Women's Freedom League, and she donated money to many different causes to further women's rights. She actually adopted a daughter in her later years named Beth. And this is... Sort of some late life controversy, I think, for Billinghurst because Beth later went on to write a memoir claiming that Billinghurst was perhaps a less than terrific mother. Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't read the memoir because I can't get my hands on it, so I'm not exactly sure uh, what the claims are. Right. But it's a tough one because I guess it's a bit of a hole in history mm. in that regard. And also I think this it's an interesting one as well because I think it just goes to show like we often talk about that everyone's fallible, you know, of even course. the women that, even these women that we celebrate as heroines or we try to put on pedestals, there's always some, mm-hmm. you know, putting people on pedestals is bound to fail. Well, I was going to say, I feel like that's very much kind of anti our mission here, isn't it? It's like we, as much as some of these women, we totally get behind and cheer on. I think we, mm. we never really want to put anyone on a pedestal because we yeah, are all yeah. human and complicated. And, and Yeah, definitely. And because the thing is, is that when you hit those sort of inconvenient bits of people's biographies, then what do you do? Yeah. Like yeah. that's the kind of thing that I think is interesting here is, you know, we've, there's, this whole idea of, you know, Billinghurst as this really fabulous woman leading the charge, this terrific empowered suffragette, but then there's also this suggestion that there's a dark yeah. side Yeah. that, as I said, I don't know too much about because I haven't been able to read mm. Beth's accounts, but I think that that kind of plays into a lot of what we talk about here. And I think it's important not to sweep these things under the rug and not to just eliminate them from this conversation because it's, like you said, kind of these inconvenient aspects Mm. of their personalities or of their lives or whatever it might be uh, because that's really disingenuous to just pretend these things don't exist or to tweak the narrative. And like we've said before, in telling these stories, we are sort of like, we're contributing to the the way that some of these stories are remembered and that we're responsible then to shed light on all the good and the bad aspects of these people's lives. Yeah, and so many of the women that we've looked at throughout, you know, the entire existence of this podcast are light and dark, yeah. you know, because that's what women are. It's not, yeah, yeah. it's coming back to this idea of, you know, <laughs> like the angel in the house yeah. or the mad woman in the attic. It's like it's, it's not either or never people. one or the other, you know. Yeah. There are all these shades in between. Yeah. That's, and that's, so I, think, I feel like that's my personal mission. <laughs> yeah, very definitely. much. It's just yeah. like let's fucking tear down these fucking binaries, man. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so I think Billinghurst is a really good example of that. And she lived right through until the 1950s. She passed away in 1953 wow. at the ripe old age of 78. And she left her body to science at the London School of Medicine for Women. And she has been posthumously honoured mm. and recognised as one of these early suffragettes, you know, one of these women who were on the front lines, yeah. literally, like quite literally fighting for yeah, women's yeah. rights. And yeah, I guess that's the story cool. of Rosa May Billinghouse. Good job. I feel like that, I'm uh, just like thinking about that last sentence you said that like quite literally fighting for women's rights, because I think we don't see quite as much of that anymore do we but like back in the day these women were scrapping yeah. in the streets sometimes and it's that sort of like build up of anger which I think is returning to be quite honest mm, like I think mm-hmm. that sort yeah. of angry more militant type of feminism we saw it come through with the suffragettes we saw it come through in the second wave and I think it kind of went away for a little while like this idea of like oh no to be taken seriously we need to be respectable and we need to not seem as though we're just like giving into our emotions because that's what men expect that coming back to that idea of emotions revealing this sort of quote-unquote base nature of women but I think now we're sort of throwing that out again and embracing anger as a tool for disruption mm. and as a tool yep. to say, okay, guys, no, fuck off. <laughs> we've had yep. enough. And yep. I think we've seen this with like the women's marches and, and they're not yeah. as violent, but yeah, I think some of but that yeah, militant I, it, style is, is on the return. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, it is like, it is that angry women and essentially, you know, like the suffragettes, they were the angry women yeah. and by and large, it was the actions of yeah. these angry suffragettes? Yeah, it's that like did actually enact change. Not that we in the end. endorse. Not that violence. I'm telling people to go out no. and smash windows, <laughs> but it's almost as though you need these moments where things are taken beyond, where they're taken mm. that sort of that extra leap forward, just in mm. order to shine light on the issue and to make a statement. And because the further you push the boundary. When, well, I guess when you push boundaries really far, you're also sort of shifting the goalposts. Yeah. So when you yeah. push the boundary beyond what we might think of as being okay, like I'm not okay with violence, obviously, but like if you're shifting that extremity, then the, the moderate goalposts shift with it. Mm. And when those moderate mm. goalposts shift with it, that's when we can actually start to see change. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that that's... Basically, the take-home message of today's episode. <laughs> awesome. You know, not that we're trying to necessarily incite revolution. No, do not. Um, do not go out. I'm not trying. Definitely not now. Don't go out of your house. No. Like, no revolutions now, people. No. Just stay the fuck inside. That's right. Stay at home. We will gather we'll re- when this is all yeah. over. We'll revolt in 2021. Yeah. 2021, we're we'll on the streets. Revolution. We're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see you there. But in the meantime, stay home, wash your hands. <laughs> oh, you That's what you need to be doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. But we do hope that we've provided a little bit of escapism. Yeah, some distraction, you. some good content for your ears. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's right. And do we have any idea where we might be heading next time around, Laura? Look, to be honest, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Good. Uh, 
I will know soon. As of right this very moment, can I tell you the answer is no. That's fine. Well, I mean, (laughs) Billinghurst was actually a last minute thing for me as well, to tell you the truth, because I had another woman lined up for this week, but because of the shutdowns, I couldn't get the book I wanted in the library. (laughs) So I had to change my whole plan of who I wanted to do. It's funny. That's really actually going to genuinely alter the way that we can research these episodes. Like the the Pooji episode, I had three big fat books on my desk that I had ordered in from three different libraries. I'd got them through document delivery and I can't do that now. So I know. It's really weird, isn't it? It's like, (laughs) it's so interesting to think how much research we do do online. Like, you know, and there's lots of different journals and articles and books and things that we can access online and we do access online but then it's also amazing for me to think how much I do genuinely just refer back to the yeah. good old printed book yeah sometimes like, <laughs> you need to pull a book off a shelf and you need to read that just, book exactly yeah and that's why I couldn't do this other woman because I was like <laughs> No, actually, I need that fucking book. There's, there's nothing online that's going to match that book, so it can't be done. <laughs> it's just, but again, it's delayed. Just, it's just delayed right. for 2021, yeah. maybe, yeah, yeah, or maybe right. the end of the year. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course, in the meantime, you can catch up on so many more of our episodes. And maybe if you do, you might be able to tell us which episode yeah. it was where we talked about hunger strikes previously because <laughs> we don't remember. Of course, you can find all of that on Acast, Stitcher, your podcasting app of choice. And if you uh, would like extra, extra content, you can join us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month where you can have access to extra holes in history episodes, to blooper reels, and to just some interviews with the two of us. Oh, yeah. We should just do more of that. Yeah. More of that. We could. It's more of us talking shit. <laughs> Hey! Um, and of course, you can always buy your Deviant Women merchandise. You can buy uh, your t shirts and your pins on Etsy. I don't know though, because if you do, then I'll have to go to the post office. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, well, maybe don't do it right now. <laughs> maybe hold off because I don't want to have to go to the post office. That's true. Yeah. You have the merch. I don't have the merch. I can't go to the post office. I could pick it up from you and go to the post office. Do you really want to go to the post office? Does anyone want to go to the post office? <laughs> No. If you can't afford to support us financially, that's okay. You can jump online and you can give us a review. We like the five-star reviews the best. If you have anything less than that, maybe just don't bother, but that's fine. And as always, we'd like to give a big thank you to Brendan, the fiancé sound guy. (laughs) And India Hui for the music. And Dan, our executive producer. And that's all from us. Uh, We will be back in another two weeks' time with another woman. Who was no, very no deviant. No one's figured out yet. That we haven't found yet, but we will. Yeah. Good. Excellent. And until then, stay safe. Take care of yourselves. Yep. And, and we'll see you next we'll time. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.